Hello, welcome to Come Back When the Leaves Are Green. This is the podcast that accompanies Orthopaedic Research UK's new one-day intensive course for paediatric orthopaedics, part of the FRCS Auth exam. I'm Gavin Spence, joining you from Dubai, and my friend and colleague Michaelis Kokonakis is joining us from London. Michaelis, how is uh, podcasting for you? Are you enjoying the experience, or, or is it proving quite exhausting? Well, certainly exhausting, but, you know, very excited about this new series of podcasts uh, we're doing. Sure, I hope they're going to be helpful. The The theme of the podcast today is keeping out of trouble in paediatric orthopaedics and keeping out of trouble in the exam and dealing with those controversial topics. So uh, I'm pleased to tell you we have our star guest today. That is Anish Sanrajka from the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital. Anish uh, is somebody we've worked with for many, many years, both as a, as a fellow clinician, at which he, he is absolutely amazing in his, in his work, but he's also always top of everybody's uh, team sheet when it comes to organising courses because he's such a fabulous teacher. It is actually quite uh, annoying doing courses with him because, Anish, you always say the things I wish I'd said. So uh, it's great to have you on board. Thanks very much for joining us. Cheers, guys. Uh, it's genuinely a pleasure always working with you guys. And and yeah, for anyone listening, this is how you convince people to join you in the work that you do. You just flatter the hell out of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's all true. It's all true. And the check's in the post. Um, so, so let's dive into it. Um, Anish, we, we were talking uh, before we actually started the recording about controversies. You know, con- controversies are everywhere in paediatric orthopaedics. And it's very hard as a candidate when you have all this knowledge in your head about the different options. Let's let's take slip capital femoral epiphysis as an example. When you're presented with a case of slip capital femoral epiphysis, there are often lots of options about what you might do. So from your point of view, have you any tips for how people can can approach these controversial topics when when dealing with, with a viva? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, as you say, paediatric orthopaedics is just full of controversy. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people in terms of orthopaedics don't like peds. OK, we're not quite as binary as some of our other subspecialty colleagues. Uh, something like Sufi um, and all of these things. I think the first thing to do when you answer the question, when you're asked a question, you start with this is a controversial topic. Or as Michaelis, you were saying, you could say this is a challenging topic, but address the fact that there is controversy and no one knows the right answer. I always think that the person who thinks they know everything is the one who shows that they know the least. Okay, so if you, I always talk about Socrates who said, you know, he's the wisest man for he knows that he knows nothing at all. And I think that's the way to be in the viva. So you need a system and I think you've got to keep it simple. So Sufi, you use your classification, you talk about mild, moderate and severe. I think we'd all agree milds are going to be pinned inside you. That's not controversial and you can't pretend it is. Even moderate, I'd say the evidence there is pretty much uh, pinning inside you and you could deal with secondary deformity afterwards if there is some. And then the the controversy lies around with those severes, doesn't it? Are you going to say pin inside you? Are you going to say that you're going to do some sort of reduction procedure? Are you going to say that actually I'll do a pinning inside you and then do some sort of extra trochantric osteotomy afterwards? But I think as soon as you said that, that's enough. That's you passed. This is an exam for the general TNO surgeon. If you can then start talking about the evidence and talking about some of those papers, that's great. But really, as soon as you've said that, I think the examiner is going to think, OK, this person knows a lot about this field already because it's about being broad, isn't it? You're showing breadth rather than depth with the viva. I think that's right. I think you have to indicate to the examiner you understand 
where this case you're being presented with fits in the general scheme of pathology. Is this a common thing? Is this a rare thing? Is this something with a high rate of complications or a low rate of complications? So take, for example, an unstable slip capital femoral epiphysis. Those are, I mean, they're nearly, they're all severe, right? They're right off. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to indicate to the examiner, you recognise this is a bad situation. It's a rare situation. It's a bad situation. The chance of AVN is high. So if you get all of that into the conversation first, then you're already winning, I think. But is it, it's going to be a problem, isn't it? Because the examiner also wants you to get off the fence. You know, you're expected to be a decision maker. So, yeah. I mean, at some point you're going to have to commit. How do you, how do you handle that? Um, I think you're completely right, because remember, this is an exam about you practicing as a day one consultant. And then, yes, you'll say, I'm going to refer it to a pediatric orthopedic consultant. And then there's the usual, oh, but pretend you are them. But I think a better way of asking that question would be, well, what are you anticipating that they will say and do? And I think that's where you give a range of uh, options because you don't know what the person on the other side of the table might be thinking. Okay, there might be someone who really favours the modified done, or there might be someone who thinks that that's heresy and you've got to do an anterior approach in a cuneiform. But if you talk about those things and then you can say that where I've worked uh, or my understanding of the evidence is that the preferred approach would be. Uh, one of the other things I'd ask people not to do in the FRCS is say in my practice. Okay. Especially when you're doing the pediatric orthopedic viva, I don't think many people sitting that exam will have had enough experience to talk about their practice. But it's amazing how people use this line. And I just think it's enough to put the examiner off because it'll be, well, okay, tell me about the, how, how many of these have you done? So don't open up, you know, don't kind of expose yourself in that way. Give them the options and then you've got to say what you're going to do. I completely agree with Anish. I mean, being honest in the exam is very, very important. You know, if you haven't seen something, but if you read about this, you should say that. Um, because there is a, there's, there's a big difference. Or if you see something, you say, this is what I see, this is what I saw in this centre, that's what they have been dealing with is. But I know there are other options, such as, um, you know, different upper reductions, femoral whatsoever. But Anish, how, I mean, I, I, I get Red Strass coming to me and saying, tell us about the Imhoiser, the Southwick, the Dam, the Fish, how important it is for the um, FICS exams to know these procedures. Do you know, I think it's very easy to get lost in all of those eponymous procedures, isn't it? And get very mixed up. And it's a little bit like, you know, really the done, the fish. You can see why people would mix them up. And again, I'd say keep it really simple. OK, so talk about intracapsular neck shortening reduction osteotomies. So all you're thinking is, OK, these ones, I'm going to open up the hip. I'm going to nibble a little bit off the neck and put the ball back. Or, and then really it's the approach, isn't it? That's the big difference. If you're talking about the Gantz, it's through a surgical dislocation, but actually the osteotomy is pretty much the same. Or the other big approach would be, we're going to pin it in situ and then we're going to do something at an extra capsular level if necessary. And I think that's it. It's just keep it that simple. And one of the other things that people tend to try and do in the exam, especially the vivas, and they do it in interviews as well, don't they? You want to use big words. You want to sound really like uh, a really complicated person. So I'm going to use lots of vocabulary that I never normally use. And I think that causes more problems. I think actually, if you keep it really simple, uh, you'll get your message across much more effectively. What sort of vocabulary are you talking about? You're talking about te technical operative? Do you know, it's not. Yeah, term? you're right. There's 
there's the technical operative terms, but actually people just try and use words that they wouldn't normally use in everyday vocabulary. So, for example, it'd be rather than saying uh, I drank a cup of tea, it would be I consumed. I consumed a vessel of a beverage <laughs> and, and everyone feels that they've got to do things like this. And again, one of the courses that I've been involved with, we did that where we had them answer an exam question for Vivas. And then we asked them a completely random question. So it might be something like, tell me about the Indian Premier League. Now, clearly it had to be someone for whom that would be a natural thing to answer. And actually, as soon as you're out of exam mode, people perform much better. But when you're in exam mode, everyone suddenly thinks that they've got to be performing in a completely different way. It's almost like they feel like they're on a stage uh, and they're giving you this monologue. So they've got to get out of this. Actually, just have a conversation with the examiner. And people will hear it again and again and again. But the examiners are genuinely, generally a bunch of nice people who are giving up their time, who are trying to get people through as much as they can. And it is so, so fair. It's ridiculous. So actually just go there, have a nice chit chat with them. And actually, if you can, entertain them, uh, try and make it interesting for them. It really, I mean, you guys know this better than I do. You've done so many courses, but when you hear people quoting the same bit of Miller at you again and again and again, uh, and there's nothing more frustrating than someone quoting boast at you, but incorrectly again and again and again, you just think, so if you're going to quote something, please do read it and learn it in simple terms. And then just talk, just talk like you're talking to another colleague in your trauma meeting, or maybe just discussing cases. It's it's hard when you know the pressure's high. <laughs> there's a yeah, lot. Definitely. The stakes are high. I mean, I, I I can see that that people do get anxious about it. It, it. But I suppose being aware of the problem is is half the battle. Talking of anxieties, I mean, so candidates will be anxious, I guess, about talking about operations that they know exist and may be indicated but have never done. Um, yeah. I mean, my thoughts about that are: let's let's say, for example, you know, a, a surgical hip dislocation you know it exists and you know it's an option and you may find yourself in a viva being encouraged to talk about it but if you've never seen one or done one i've always thought that it's an acceptable thing to talk about principles and to say okay i i haven't personally done this or had personal experience of it but my understanding of the principle of a surgical hip dislocation is that the dissection is very important based on anatomical studies and the key point about it is to preserve blood supply to the epiphysis and the principles of that are to do with the capsulotomy and, and the, the way the trochanter is osteotomized and so on. Do you think that's right? I mean, is that, will that get you a pass if you can talk in these terms? I definitely uh, agree. And actually, Gavin, just what you said there, I think would be more than a pass, wouldn't it? it and it is very, and that's what I mean about keeping it really simple. Okay, you didn't mm. talk about the blood supply in itself. Uh, you didn't talk about the type of capsulotomy that you're supposed to do. You said nothing fancy. Uh, and I think the worst thing to do would be try and pretend you've seen an operation that you haven't. Now, clearly, that's going to vary depending on the case. You can't say that about a supracondylar fracture. If you're sitting there, I think you're on shaky ground if you say, I've never seen one of those, but my understanding is. But something like a surgical dislocation, yeah, I think that uh, it's not something that's commonly performed but we all like talking about it because it's, you know, uh, and Michaelis does this, but it's a very sexy procedure, isn't it? It's like the ultimate uh, in terms of you are dislocating the native hip and putting it back and uh, with a, a low risk of ABN. So, of course, it's important to have an idea of what that involves and the risks that you're taking. But 
no one's going to make you draw the capsulotomy or sit there asking you about the finer points of the rate of ABN. Of course, yeah. you say in Switzerland, the rate is zero. <laughs> but yeah. I, I think the, the main message, John, is you're trying to pass on, which is very important, is understand the principles of what Gavin just said. You know, when you mention intracapsular open reduction or proximal fellow endotrochanteric ostotomies at the later stage, you know, you have the pass most of the times because you understand the principle. That's, that's what it's all about. But the same, I presume, applies to other controversies in pediatric orthopedics. And I'm just going to take you away now from SCUFIs and uh, probably end up to another big controversy, such as Perthes. I presume you can end up, uh, you know, everybody can get up with a Perthes case. And um, they've all read about this. But how would somebody tackle, you know, the, uh, the typical question of a, you're in the clinic and an eight-year-old um, boy comes with... Uh, an x-ray that uh, looks like Perthes, what would be your management? How would someone, so, uh, someone tackle this, especially someone who doesn't have that exposure, like the average of the pedicure trial, who doesn't have the exposure to pediatric orthopedics in, uh, in very much detail? Yeah. I think, again, it's about having a system. So I think those are the two things we're talking about here, it's systems and principles. And again, with Perthes, you're going to start with it's controversial. I think all of us could probably see the same patient on separate days, uh, same radiograph and still come up with different management sometimes. I think the things to say are, and again, you know, so with Perthes, what I'd be saying is trying to combine your clinical and radiographic findings. So rather than saying Perthes is an idiopathic avascular necrosis, you could say Perthes is controversial. We don't know why it occurs and we don't really know who to treat and when or how. What we do know is that there are various things that affect the outcome. And at this point, I'd start throwing in, so Cattrall's clinical and radiographic head at risk signs. And what I, because I genuinely, I do use those in my decision making, but you'd say I'd examine the child regularly. I'd be looking at the radiographs to see for progression of disease. And the treatment options range from non-operative to operative with some people choosing the former all the time and some people choosing the latter. But we don't really know what the answer is and there's no evidence supporting one over another. I think that would be pretty much Perthes done. I think the other thing to say about Perthes is you've got to recognise the X-ray changes and make sure you differentiate from other things that be causing the AVN. So, uh, you know, it's the standards, isn't it? You're going to look for both hips and you might throw in, well, the other hip looks normal. So at this stage, I think it is Perthes, not MED. So you're already telling them that actually, I know that, that you might be thinking about this. I'd be checking that they're systemically well, because again, some of the other conditions that can present, so sometimes the hematological malignancies can present in a similar way. So you're throwing some of this in just to show that you've got this higher order of thinking. It's not about just blurting out facts about Perthes disease. And that, that would be my tip there. And then you could talk about in terms of non-operative, you're going to mention, you have to mention containment, don't you? So again, for me, as soon as you say containment, you think, okay, this is someone who knows what they're talking about. That could be physio, that could be bracing, that could be surgical, which might be femoral osteotomy, might be a pelvic osteotomy in the form of a shelf or a triple. Some people in even combine both of those things. Uh, weight bearing. And I think those are the things actually, with something like Perthes, it's the simpler questions. You know, you can tell whether someone's done a peds job or not. As soon as you say things like, how frequently will you see them? And then that floors people who've not actually seen any birthdays. So the answer in my world would be three to four monthly. But again, it depends on that range of movement and whether they're stiffening up 
uh, in case I need to see him sooner. So again, do you see it? None of this is rocket science, right? We're not talked about any evidence, um, but I think that would get you your six. That's interesting what you said about the uh, the follow-up and, and that's how you can sort out people who've been in a paediatric job from those who have not. A couple of things about that. There is a, a podcast which we did with Karen, who was uh, an ex-fellow of yours, Michalis, and she talks about the fact that if you haven't actually had the chance to do a paediatric job, then in good time, try and get yourself along to some paediatric clinics to learn these kind of things, which the books tend not to cover. They tell you about yeah. containment. They tell you about the different Waldenstrom stages and all of that, but they don't tell you how to practically do the job. So that information you can either pick up from from going to clinics and it's also something we we will tackle in the orthopedic research uk's course where we try to include that kind of information that is not in the books and we will draw your attention to that in the course yeah so so we're using these conditions slip capital femoral epiphysis and perthes as examples really but the, the general principles we've talked about I, I think would apply to other conditions i mean but perhaps we could we could pick another one ddh is, is the other obvious example so yeah. uh, you know a, a walking child with ddh I know this causes understandable concern to candidates because they get the diagnosis and they know that surgery is indicated. But do you just do an open reduction? Do you do a femoral procedure? Do you do a pelvic procedure? Which pelvic procedure? If you don't have a lot of experience, it's hard to answer that question. And I know people get quite anxious about it. So any top tips from, from either of you really on, on how to handle that situation? Yeah, I feel the more I see and the more I do, the more uncertain I'm becoming as well. Um, so what I used to say to uh, trainees is just keep life simple, because I think there are a lot of people out there who think the answer is uh, wait till they're 18 months old, open reduction and Salter, uh, because that's when Salter described doing the open reduction with his procedure was at 18 months. And I do think that for a lot of people, that might be the standard. After age two, consider femoral shortening. But that would be really trying to keep it simple. That's the, if you don't want to do any more reading, then just come up with that and you'll, you'll, be, you'll be okay. In real life, um, I'm not sure what you guys do, but then, you know, again, it's catrol. And, you know, in, in hip world, you can just keep throwing in catrol, can't you? Sufi, he published loads. Perthes, uh, he still remains the god. No one has actually come up with anything better than he did. And DDH, uh, he described a test of stability. So do your open reduction. If you need over 30 degrees of flexion as well as abduction and internal rotation, you're going to be looking at a pelvic procedure. If you only need abduction and internal rotation, then you could just do a femoral procedure. That's what we tend to do in real life. But again, you can talk about the tonus grade and how high the dislocation is. So I would actually say that these are the factors I would consider. I would say that actually walking age ddh is controversial some people do the femur some people do the pelvis some people do both everyone has a different way of deciding what they do but i would open up the joint talk about the blocks that you're going to be dealing with so performing my adductor and psoas tenotomy opening up the capsule excising the ligamentum teres the pulvinar uh, dividing the tal and then assessing the stability of the hip and deciding whether i'm going to be doing a pelvic or ephemeral procedure and just knowing why you're doing what you're doing. So everyone gets, you know, if I asked you guys, when's the last time, you, know, you might say last week, but do you do Chiari osteotomies anymore? I, no. I don't, no. I, I thought that was a, a, an, an old-fashioned operation, am I wrong? I, I claim to be a specialist and I've never seen one in my fellowship or training and I've never done one. So uh... No, but because it's in the books, uh, and I think it is in Miller, people still talk about the Chiari, don't they, as a salvage. 
And you think, actually, really, okay, you can. If you really want to knock yourself out, you could learn about Salter. You could then talk about the triple. Uh, you could talk about a Gantz PAO, where basically you're just doing everything much closer to the acetabulum. Uh, and the Dagar, you know, one of the things, the true Dagar, the original Dagar, was actually described for DDH, because what's really good about a Dagar is you make your cut and then where you put your wedges is where you're getting your correction. So, so again, what I was saying to some of the trainees I teach is just say Dagar. Uh, you can use it for neuromuscular, you can use it for DDH. But then some of this depends on who's on the other side of the table again, because I'm not sure everyone knows that. So that's where sometimes it's easier just to stick to convention and say Salter, because no one's going to raise an eyebrow, are they? I say the Salter osteotomy is a bit like the Exeter hip. Many, many hip surgeons don't use the Exeter hip. But in the FRCS, if you asked what implant are you going to use, they'll say the Exeter. Um, and I feel that that's where the Salter is, I think, because it's so known and established. If you say that I'm going to wait till 18 months and do an assault osteotomy, uh, people would just probably nod and accept that. Mm. And as I said, when they push you and say, oh, they're over to just say yes. And so I do a femoral shortening as well. Well, I, th- I think it is not just challenging for the uh, for the candidates to uh, do the exams. It's, it's the, the, the truth is what you said, Danish. It is challenging for everyone. It is challenging for us. We don't have the answers either. And then this is yeah. something that even the, the candidates can uh, can mention in their own exams. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, it's not coincidental. I do have very similar practice to you. So I do like waiting until 18 months because I think this is where the evidence goes. And in my hands, this is what works better because I've been caught when I do that earlier. But uh, I would say in, in the exams and in pediatric orthopedics, it comes down to the principles you we were discussing before in SCUFI and, and Perthes. And not necessarily you have to mention names, but you can say a pelvic osteotomy. You should, though, know, especially for DDH, probably you need to know that the difference between, you know, the nominate complete osteotomy and the incomplete acetabuloplastis pericapsular osteotomies. Yeah. You don't, again, you don't have to mention any names. You can just say this and you'll be fine. But if you say sorted probably with DDH, you're probably going to be okay. And I think what's important, again, is talking about, uh, and again, it's a real old saying, but the obtaining a reduction and maintaining a reduction. Because I think a lot of people don't understand that you're doing the osteotomies to make the joint and your reduction stable. And so if you can explain that, and this is, again, it's just keeping it really simple, isn't it? And and as you said, Mikhail, it's just talking about, are you redirecting it? And again, people get really kind of, oh, is that, you know, are you hinging it on the triradiate or are you hinging it at the symphysis pubis? I think those are the, the further bits that you might want to learn, but get to grips with the basics first. And that's what we're talking about here is just the basics, isn't it? And I think if you're polished on that, then you'll do well. Yeah, I, I like that thing about obtaining and maintaining a stable reduction because it's a very familiar phrase to people from their trauma um, yeah. efforts. It's easy to recall. But if you say something like that to an examiner, there's two ways of answering the question, isn't there? You know, you can say, I do an open reduction and a salter. You're not wrong. Um, nobody can say you're wrong, but have you? What have you told the examiner? You might have just learnt that parrot fashion. You probably have, yeah. but better to say, well, the principle is that I first of all need to obtain a reduction. So open reduction is going to be required because of the blocks. That's a that's incidentally a cue for the examiner to ask you what those blocks are, which you you set the examiner up to ask you a question. That's that's a nice technique if you can use it. Yeah. And then you can say, I need to maintain the reduction. And this is where it's controversial, but there are various osteotomies designed to do that. I mean, if an examiner hears that, then the next thing that you say 
they're, they're already going to be well disposed towards you, I think. So, so principles are important. And these are the kind of things we talk about in the course. And similarly, we, we do uh, this Viva practice available on the course. And, and we often talk about the golden answers afterwards. You're welcome to come on this course and, and have a go. Have a go if you think you're hard enough. And then afterwards, we'll, we'll give you what we, we think would be a, well, the sort of answer that we would want to hear as, as examiners. Yeah, and again, hope, with PDH, I think it's simple things like, OK, tell me about the spiker. And so everyone will talk about the safe zone of Ramsey. But, you know, what does that actually mean? But if I if I said, yeah, but does the spiker go down to the ankle or the knee? It's those little bits that, again, let you know whether someone has done this or seen it. And the other big one is talking through the open reduction and the approach, because people forget to mention splitting the iliac apophysis. So they'll talk about internervous planes. They'll talk about how they're going to separate gluteus medius and rectus femoris. And you say, how do you do that? And then they just, uh, they, they don't mention the apophysis. And I think that's the key. I think as soon as you, if you, if you miss that, we know that you haven't actually seen one of these. Uh, and it's, so it's a little thing. Uh, so yes, if you're doing an, um, a washout of a hip for infection, you leave the apophysis and pull rec fem, but otherwise you're going to split that apophysis and do a subperiosteal dissection. So time marches on. Hopefully these, these principles are generally applicable. But Anish, we, we're keen on asking people what there any other top tips that they might have for, for candidates undertaking this exam. So, I mean, you've mentioned a few as you've gone along. Is there anything else you, th- you think people might benefit from knowing? Yeah, so if I just recap, I think the ones there are, as you said, there's a couple I've already said. But the first thing I'd say is answer the question that you're asked. OK, not the question you want to answer. So a good Viva technique is to steer it, just like you demonstrated, Gavin, with that example of DDH. But whilst you might not know the exact answer they're looking for, you can certainly waffle a little bit and kind of talk about things around that topic, but you can't just change topic and don't waste time. If you don't actually know what they're trying to get at, either ask them to clarify the question or just say, I'm really sorry, but uh, I don't know. Don't just come up with something else. My other thing is, again, give a balanced answer and then come off the fence. So we talked about that. Give the range of options, but then you've got to say what you would do, especially with trauma. I think with the elective procedures, yes, you could say these are the options here and they won't expect you to come up with something that you'll do, but trauma, you've got to do that. Forearm, you can't say you could MUA it, you could plate it and you could elastic nail it and then stay quiet. You'll say, well, these would be options, but my favorite approach would be. And then the final thing that I did mention before is be interesting and be enthusiastic. OK, make it fun for them. Teach them stuff, uh, engage them and just make it a fun conversation. Uh, that counts for a lot in terms of the scoring. Remember, this is a really subjective, objective exam. OK, at the end of the day, there are marks. They know that they're supposed to give you certain marks for certain bits, but you can still influence that just by making life interesting for them and smiling. Anish, there's a very good reason why we asked you on this podcast. I think in, in the last half an hour, you have you have demonstrated exactly why. I'm so grateful to you and to Michalis. Thank you both very much for your insights. Um, I hope everybody listening has found that useful. Thanks very much for listening. And uh, please tune in to other podcasts in this series. We look forward to joining you again on those soon. Bye for now.